Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 48. Jesus is speaking. He's on the mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful, picturesque setting. And he says these words. This is the continuing, continuation of it. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even if it's your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You've heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You've also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say, by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, by my head. For you can't turn one hair white or black. So true. I've been trying to get my colour back for many years. Back to Jesus, sorry. Jesus said, just say a simple, yes I will, or no I won't. And anything beyond this is from the evil one. You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you can carry his gear for a mile, carry it for two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be complete, even as your Father in heaven is complete. Amen. Well, our speaker this morning is Jean Barbare. He's coming up this morning. So, I'll pray for you, Jean, and then hand this microphone to you. Please join me as I pray for Jean. Father, we thank you for Jean, 
and for what he does, particularly in the youth space as a youth worker and a member of the youth leadership team. And we simply ask that your grace would be upon him and the work, the research, the thinking, the praying that he has invested into preparing for this morning will produce the fruit that you want to produce in him and through him and into our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thank you. Okay. So, I've been uh, given the privilege of uh, covering the second half of chapter 5 here, of the Sermon on the Mount. Did anybody actually uh, read the rest of Blair's section uh, that last week that we missed? Good, good. Very good. That's good, because there are some shared themes in that second half of his section um, with my section as well. Okay, so I think one of the motifs that was most consistent in that section is that you've heard it said or you've heard the command. Um, And I think one of the things Jesus is doing in this section is he's bringing, I think he's like bringing out the spirit of the law to a, a culture that's very much based on the letter of the law. So my Bible has uh, five conveniently titled sections. Can you go to the next slide? Adultery, divorce, oaths, eye for an eye, and love for enemies. And as far as themes go, I think I would summarize the first, half, uh, the first three as, uh, next slide, mean what you say and do, and overcome evil with good. So, on to the first section, adultery. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So those of you who did read uh, the rest of Blair's section last week, uh, you might have noticed there's an idea there about the heart being just as important as the action. So there's the section where Jesus compares hate to murder, right? If you hate someone in your heart, you might as well have murdered them, basically. And there's a similar idea in this section where he's talking about adultery. He's like, okay, so the letter of the law here is don't commit adultery, But that's no good if in your heart you're still fantasizing about that. So, I put this under the section, mean what you say and do. And what do I mean by this? I think Jesus is majoring on this idea of matching our hearts with our speech and our actions. In this case, the action is abstaining from adultery. But the heart matter is you still want it. So, that's, well, that's the thing. It's a hypocrisy of the heart. And uh, this idea is echoed later in Matthew 23. Jesus is giving seven woes to the teachers of the laws. And he, uh, he uses some pretty strong language, no doubt due to his target audience of the teachers of the law. But he, he compares it to them cleaning the outside of the cup, but not the inside. You know, he says, you fools, clean the inside of the cup, then the outside will also be clean. Later, he then also compares them to whitewashed tombs outwardly beautiful but inwardly full of dead men's bones and everything that's unclean. He doesn't use as strong language in this context, but it's the same idea, especially as pertaining to adultery. He's like, sure, on the outside, you can be not doing it, but on the inside, you need to make those things match. Don't let there be a disconnect between your heart, your mouth, and your actions. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Okay, on to divorce, the next section. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. I think that's pretty, pretty strong. Um, I'm sure we all know someone who's been divorced or divorcees who have remarried, for example. I'm not going to comment on that. Um, but there is a very clear message here that I will talk about, which is that marriage is sacred and what God has joined together, let, mo- let no man separate, which again is a matter of the heart. In Matthew 19, Jesus is confronted by some Pharisees on this very issue of divorce. They bring up this, this scripture where Moses permits a man to divorce his wife for any reason, basically. They say, well, you know, Moses said we can divorce for any reason. And Jesus replies, well, that was a concession that was made because your hearts were wrong. It wasn't that way from the beginning. And the heart of the matter is that they were made male and female. The two become one flesh, joined together as one by God himself. You make the covenant vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And a vow is a pretty strong thing to make, especially in the marriage context, and we know how strongly God feels about covenants. It's not an honest vow if you think that divorce is an option for you when you're going into marriage, right? That defeats the whole purpose of a vow, especially when you say, till death do us part. And so in this context uh, of this time, monogamy has become a pretty widespread thing. It's, It's pretty much the norm here. And Jewish men were abusing the divorce laws, and they were divorcing for trivial reasons. Something that I actually didn't know but um, learned is that apparently a lot of the time the reason that they were divorcing was because they actually just wanted younger, newer wives, which is pretty disrespectful, I would say. A lot of women were sent away with nothing more than a note, no financial support, and a severely damaged reputation. So one of the things Jesus is saying here is that, well, wives aren't a trivial thing. They're actually worthy of dignity and respect, and they're worthy of the vows that you made to them. To choose divorce and then remarry, or at least to choose divorce with the intent of remarrying, is in heart adultery, according to this scripture. In that same Matthew 19 section, his disciples even say, well, if that's how strongly you feel about it, maybe it's better not to marry at all. Okay, on to oaths. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you've made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I think this is where the idea of meaning what you say and do, I feel it really culminates in this section. And the heart is that we need our our actions and our words to be guided by our internal convictions in honesty. I feel like we live in a a time when our yeses and our noes aren't enough to guarantee an outcome. Our commitments are made flippantly and casually. And so we rely on making promises. And even then, when we say our promise, it hardly really means anything like I can think of so many times that I've said I promise about something and then I've made some 
BS excuse about why I have to pull out or whatever. Like, it's not an honest promise, that's the thing. And that's especially true for a lot of people these days, I feel. Much like this previous idea with marriage, we can treat these as some things that we can just back out of for any and every reason. But there is a cure for this. Let your speech be sincere and only say yes or no if you mean it. In Matthew 12, Jesus says that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. So don't rely on oaths or vows because you have no power over the things that you swear by. Nor can you guarantee that something won't prevent you from, from sorry, nor can you guarantee that anything will prevent you, won't prevent you, hold on, you cannot guarantee that something's not going to come up is what I'm getting at. Um, and so that would, perform, that would cause you to profane the things that you've sworn by, which is why Jesus says, you know, don't swear by heaven, don't swear by earth, don't swear by Jerusalem. You're going to profane those things if you're unable to keep your word. Don't even swear by yourself. Again, you don't have any power over that. This is a safeguarding because things inevitably, they do come up. We just, we can't control that. So if you haven't made a vow and you have to pull out of something, great. You haven't broken a vow. It's good. That's a safeguarding for you. As much as it depends on you, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. A disciple of Jesus is a person whose yes means yes. If they say they're going to do something, you know that they fully intend on doing that. If they say no, you know that they're not going to do that. Their word is their guarantee. On to the final section, overcoming evil with good. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile with him, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So there's two, there's two sort of sections in here. We've got, you know, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say turn the other cheek. And you've heard it said, love your enemy, sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy. Recently, I've actually been uh, reading through the first five books of the Bible again. And interestingly enough, only the section that says, love your neighbor, is actually an Old Testament reference. The hate your enemy part was added on because that's not in there anywhere as far as I can see. So, oh yeah, and we learn in the parable of the Good Samaritan that your enemy actually is your neighbor anyway. So, there are three ideas in this section we have. Uh, next slide. There. Vengeance is the Lord's. Our heart is for the salvation of our enemies and that our love sets us apart from the world. Firstly, I want to focus on this idea of vengeance is the Lord's. It's God's justice, not our justice. Um, recently, I was actually speaking to our youth group um, 
I got to talk about part of the life of David, and I was given the section where David's actually being pursued by Saul. And there's two moments where Saul finds himself vulnerable, and David has the opportunity to kill him. And twice, both times, David says, nope, not going to do that. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, he says something to the effect of, who am I to kill him? Either God will do it, or he'll die of his old age, or he'll go out to battle and die there, but it's not for me to make that judgment. We, as imperfect and sinful humans, aren't able to dish out perfect justice. We're just, we just can't. Any justice that we think that we can bring is always going to be hypocritical because we, ourselves, are sinful people. It's just we're incapable of making that judgment. It's not to say that we don't make use of our justice system, as flawed as it can be, um, but as for us as individuals, it's not for us to react and choose what the right uh, justice is. God, however, is perfect. And on to the next slide, I feel like Paul puts it quite well. He says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible and as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this idea of turning the other cheek and, and doing good to your enemies was an interesting one for me to ponder while I was preparing for this. Mainly the, the turn the other cheek section, because... At face value, um, you can actually go to the next slide. Yeah, so at face value, when you read that, it kind of looks, it looks to me anyway, like Jesus is telling us that we should be facilitating abuse towards ourselves in some sense. Like someone's doing something to us, what do we do? Well, we tell them to do more of that. That's how it looks at face value. And I was really wondering about it. And when I was, I showed my script to, to Wayne, and he asked these questions. He asked, okay, so how do you turn the cheek when someone punches you and knocks out your tooth or gouges one of your eyes out? And I'm thinking to myself, like, surely the answer isn't, well, you know, just turn your other cheek, offer him the other one, and hopefully he knocks your other tooth out or, you know, hey, do you want this eye as well? Like, that <laughs> doesn't seem right. And there's all sorts of other questions that come along with that, like, how many contexts does this apply to? Like, it's easy maybe to apply the idea to a situation where you're being persecuted for your faith, for example. Like, in that case, it actually is a good thing, or at least it's a blessed thing to be persecuted and victimized in that way. That's a blessed thing. But what about some other context, like maybe a workplace and your boss has it out for you for no reason, or maybe you're in an abusive marriage or you've got an abusive parent or something. How do you turn the cheek there? How many cheeks do you turn? Which cheeks do you turn? You know? Where do you draw the line? Is that, is that what pleases God? Do we, just, do we just ask for more of that? Is an abusive partner or a parent even considered an evil person in this context? I don't know about you guys, but like up until I actually read through this and had to like talk on it, I didn't really think about that before. But here's the conclusion that I came to uh, with some helpful discussions. Um, I don't think that it's consistent with God's character that he would ask us to be facilitating abuse towards ourselves or to be seeking ways to be victimized. I don't think that's what he's got in mind. I think that what he's doing is that he's putting forth 
a peacemaker value system into a culture that's basically driven by revenge and this idea of an eye for an eye. Although we know that so often an eye for an eye becomes an eye for two eyes or something like that. It always escalates. It's a reactionary culture where violence begets violence as people seek their own justice. Jesus is bringing a new way and I think it goes something like this. Firstly, don't be a victim. If you have the means to remove yourself from a situation, do so. True martyrdom is not found in seeking out ways to be victimized. The cycle of violence breaks when a person repays evil with good and chooses not to respond in kind. There are times, though, when removing yourself just isn't an option. And I think especially true for Jesus' time, it's a dishonorable thing to continue kicking someone who's down and even worse, to try and attack somebody who's opted out of violence. Opting out of the reactionary cycle should end the violence by starving the fire of its fuel. That said, though, especially these days, there are people who are just truly possessed and hell-bent on doing violence no matter what. But there's something for that too. Should they continue evil against someone who doesn't react, even reacting with kindness, you can be assured that they're storing up judgment for themselves, heaping coals of fire on their heads. But there's something that's even better than coals of fire on the heads of our enemies, and that is that the veil be lifted from their eyes and our enemies become our brothers and our sisters. At the end of the day, no one really wants to be evil. I can't imagine most people are waking up and looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, I think I'll do some evil today. Most people don't want that. Hurt people hurt people, and those who are hurt and damaged are more prone to the deceptions and the temptations from the enemy. God wants them all so that he can heal them, and it's our job to show them a better way. The ultimate end to this is making peace. Therefore, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And it's interesting, this line, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, is a nice link back to that beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Finally, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? You might know that the, the Greek word for this type of love is agape, which I think in some older translations is translated charity. Our love, which is action far more than it is emotion, is what sets us apart from the world. We know love himself. Love introduced us to, sorry, Jesus introduced us to him and set the example by sacrificially loving the people who hated him, the people who spat on him, the same people who nailed him to the cross, those who lashed him, those who mocked him, those who betrayed him. Paul even helpfully defines this type of love for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you want some tips on how to practically love your enemies, I encourage you to read that chapter, particularly verses 4 to 7. But by loving our enemies, we reflect the loving perfection of God to a selfish and loveless world. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And on to the final slide. To summarize and to conclude, I think, these are the two things that I would encourage you to, to ponder. If you want a, an action that you can obey, these are the two things. Mean what you say and do, matching your speech, your action, and your heart, truthfully under God, being honest in your intentions. 
and overcome evil with good, just as Christ suffered unto death, and opened not his mouth for our sakes, that we could be saved and brought back into God's family. And that concludes uh, this section. Thanks, Jean. Really enjoyed working with, with Jean and posing those questions to him. So uh, just to draw a link for you in case you need it, in Romans 5, verse 10, speaking of the work of Christ and God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. And here's verse 10. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. So you see the context of what Christ, Christ is foreshadowing and pointing us, and this is part of this completeness of this Love for enemies that is beyond anything that we are even capable of as human beings. That while we were still his enemies, uh, we were, he died for us. Uh, thanks again, John.